Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Cover Down. Uh, today, we're going to change things up a little bit and uh, try something new. So stick around. I uh, hope you enjoy this episode. Uh, it's going to be a little bit more in-depth with uh, one of the biggest people uh, in this organization. Roll the intro! <laughs> back in the studio doug love it yeah it's uh i mean last time doing it over the internet was kind of cool it was it was relaxing i was in my underwear the entire time <laughs> yeah. wait you had pants on <laughs> we're supposed to wear pants on this <laughs> i so, thought the memo said it was optional <laughs> <laughs> so yeah we've been we've been pretty busy as of late um between coming back from ruck up 2023 with vets and hava Yep. Um, going out to the Mansfield car show and testing our, our skills that we learned from <laughs> Ruck Up 2023 with Vets. They did Hammer. work out very well. They though. did work they out. They work out very well. Yep. Uh, the go bag is an essential thing to have on us going forward. Um, and then we did the Blessing the Bikes Yep. Right down at the waterfront. Correct. That was awesome. Uh, made some pretty cool contacts, saw some awesome people, some great bikes out there. And then now we're here back in the studio and we're going to change things up a little bit so this is like forever since we've been here it has but you know it's kind of it can get difficult sometimes right to yeah to do this and to do all that but we're managing we're managing yep. um so yeah like we alluded to the audience uh we're going to change it up a little bit we're going to do we're going to do an interview with you uh and just kind of on your general journey right? okay from where it all started you know you know growing up We've got you interested in the military all the way to where we are now, and then hopefully plans for the future. Um, so we'll kind of navigate through these waters, follow the timeline, and get to know a little bit more about why you're doing what you're doing today. Sounds like a so, plan. Let's it started many moons ago. <laughs> many, many, many <laughs> moons ago. Oh, my God. Could you get the lighting even more dramatic? <laughs> Right, <laughs> the somber music just starts to creep in. <laughs> the red moon rises. <laughs> All right, but at least we're enjoying our breakfast beers. Yeah, that's cool. Mm. Cold like the Rockies. Shameless plug. All right, so <laughs> <laughs> not sponsored by. Not sponsored yeah. by. Would appreciate to be sponsored by though. <laughs> so let's talk about you, Doug. Um, so let's start from the beginning. Where'd, where'd you grow up? Uh, grew up all over. So my dad was in the Navy. Okay. So I had that typical Navy life of just kind of bouncing all around. I was born in Virginia, <laughs> then moved to Scotland where my uh, other brother was born. And then went to South Carolina where my younger brother was born. And then when we were in South Carolina, my dad got injured when he was out at sea, mm. uh, and then he was coming up close to the end of his uh, enlistment, I guess you can say, and then it was either medically retire or he just wanted to finish out his 20 years. So he took shore duty up here in Connecticut, 
and then moved up here when I was in like fifth grade, I think it was. Who was your was your father a submariner? No, he was surface. The surface. Yeah. And he ended up in Connecticut. What's that? And he ended up in Connecticut. Yeah. Doing what? Uh, actually, I don't know what he was doing. He was up here. Oh, all right. <laughs> I just know he was working on the sub base and he was organizing a lot of things when he was here. He actually started the, um, you know, around Christmas time, you see the Toys for Tots. Yeah. So he started that when he was here. Oh, wow. And when I was growing up, I was I think it was like two weeks before Christmas, three weeks before Christmas, he would have like three or four Mayflower trucks lined up in Navy housing. <clears throat> and we would be in the back of the Mayflower truck and we would just be riding around the neighborhoods, just collecting donations. And then we would take them onto the base and then just have everything offloaded. Wow. So it was, it was actually kind of cool. It was cold, but you know, every year it was something I look forward to just hopping on the back of the Mayflower trucks and growing up when we were younger, we saw them on the highway. We'd call them the ho-ho trucks. Cause we, <laughs> cause we always, you know, kind of just related it to like Christmas time and Santa and stuff. And we're like, Hey, ho-ho truck, you know? And I'm like, fifth sixth grade i didn't know any better <laughs> i still have that mentality at 43 but <laughs> so so your family is pretty active with charities yeah. yeah even just growing up yep that's interesting so your, your father was in the navy yep he spent some time in scotland which is a don't re really remember much of it though it's a shame it's a wonderful place i know it's i want to go back absolutely beautiful um and then you joined the army yeah you know, which is kind of counter too. <laughs> all right. Was that, yeah, was so, that, was, did that cause a stink in the family? No. So what happened was when I was in high school, my grades were, I mean, they were garbage. Like I'm not that type of person. I could sit there in a classroom, listen to someone speak mm -hmm. and then retain the information. I'm a tactile learner. Mm -hmm. So my grades suffered senior year. I was out in the garage working with my dad and he was just like, what are you doing when you graduate high school? no idea I'm still trying to figure that out and then he was like he i'm a lot like my dad like we don't sugarcoat anything mm. so he goes well i'll be very honest with you um i'd be surprised if you got two dollars for a scholarship with your grades and i was like wow thanks for calling me dumb <laughs> uh but he was right so the choices were it was like take a year year and a half off to kind of find my way or find a direction um or join the military and I knew the military was always an option. It was just never one of those things that I was kind of like motivated about, mm -hmm. but it was always there. Uh, but his only rule was, is that if I was thinking about the military, it was to talk to every single branch and not just pick one. He was like, I want you to get all the information from all the branches and make a sound decision. Yep. He also did say, you know, if you, he's like, uh, if you join the Navy, that'd be kind of cool. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, you know, it would. Uh, but also at the same time, I've lived that life and I kind of wanted my own adventure. Hmm. Uh, so I went and talked to the recruiters, you know, you got that typical um, recruiter rhetoric where it was like, you walk in and, you know, you talk to the guy, the Navy recruiter and he's like, yeah, if you join the Navy, you know, we can get you in as a culinary arts specialist. And then as soon as you graduate, you know, you're training, you become a Navy SEAL. So I'm like, culinary great. So I can be seal. slaying hash browns and then slaying bodies on the side. Like, this is awesome, right? <laughs> this is operating hash browns. <laughs> yeah. So I talked to every branch. And then when I walked into the Army recruiter's office, there was this uh, female recruiter who walked up. And she was like, so are you thinking about joining the Army? I'm like, I don't know. I'm still trying to decide. And she goes, good. She goes, can I be honest with you? And I was like, yeah, I'm hoping you will be. Mm -hmm. And she goes, military sucks. And I went, 
like, wow, that's a rarity and honest recruiter. And I just looked at her and I was like, are you serious? She goes, military sucks. You're going to be asked to do stuff you don't understand. You're going to be told to do stuff you don't understand. You're going to be put on missions or whatever that just make absolutely no sense. And the way they're going to tell you to do it makes no sense. She says, but at the end of the day, it's going to line you up for the rest of your life. And it's going to set you up for success. And no matter what you do. And I was like, wow. Okay. That's kind of like the brutal honest truth so the so, saying of you're gonna do a lot of things that make no sense to you at the time was just you're like no that's fine yeah. everything i do makes no sense right now yeah <laughs> so. like school made no sense to me and it was like i had to be there right yeah. it just to me the stuff that we were learning in school some of it just didn't line up with what i believed in what i thought so again it just it just made sense to me at that point mm -hmm. um and the fact that she literally was standing there saying military sucks mm -hmm. And basically tr not trying to sell me on the idea of these pipe dreams and these, you know, fancy call of duty jobs or whatever it is. Uh, she was just honest with me. Um, so took the ASVAB. Uh, I'll be honest, I really didn't score that that high on it. Mm -hmm. Again, I'm not a uh, like a book learner type person. Mm -hmm. I'm more tactile, more um, like mechanic wise. So when I went up to MEPS, it was, I was sitting down with the, uh, the people up there and they're like, well, you could be a culinary arts specialist or petroleum transporter specialist. I was like, so when I get out, if I sign, I can either work at Burger King or the mobile station. And he was like, well, you know, not necessarily, you know, and I was like, nope, if there's nothing in mechanics, I don't want it. I'm not mm -hmm. going to sign. So after about an hour of them kind of trying to sell me on the deal, I was like, no, if anything, I want mechanics. I grew up in the garage with my dad. I was always starting a wrench with my dad. It was something I was familiar with, something in the area that I was comfortable in. And that was it. They turned around. They were like, oh, we got this you know, position here. It's a 63 Bravo, which is a lightweight vehicle mechanic. Mm -hmm. And they were like, you can do this. And I was like, all right. And it's funny that we're doing the the this interview today mm -hmm. it's because may 28th 1998 which today is may 28th oh. was the day that i signed to join the military which, wow <laughs> which is weird but it's also funny because it's my mom's birthday so i was up at meps before i left she's like don't do anything dumb and i'm like all right love you mom <laughs> leave for like nine hours i come back and you know she's cooking or she's doing something in the kitchen she's like so how did meps go and I was like, good, I, I leave September 1st for the army. And she's like, what? And I'm like, hey, happy birthday. <laughs> <laughs> hey. And then she was like, her face was just like. It's funny you say that. <laughs> I left for boot camp on my birthday. Oh, really? <laughs> so. That's funny. When, when my dad, my dad came home and I told him I joined the army. Um, he was proud. You know, f you know, his son following his footsteps joining the military was yeah. um, something he was proud of. But then he asked me, he goes, well, why didn't you join the Navy? He's like, I just want to know. And I was like, well, pops, I was like, you know, we live this life or you live this life. And I kind of saw the inner workings of it. <coughs> I kind of want my own adventure. So I'm like, nothing against the Navy. I just kind of want something new and, you know, something that I'm not familiar with. And he goes... Okay, I can respect that. And I was like, and besides, like, you guys still wear bell bottoms. I'm like, come on, dude, really? And then he just looked at me. And then from right there, it was that 
I, I didn't even go to basic training and mm -hmm. it was already that, you know, general ribbing between the branches and stuff. And yeah. every time I do something, it was, it was, oh, because you're army. And I'm mm -hmm. like, don't get mad at me because you still have to write your name in your underwear and stuff. And <laughs> That's good that you can share that experience. With so, me. so what, what, what year was this when you joined? Uh, that was 1998. 1998. Yeah. So man, it was a total different service back then. Yeah. Whole different world too. Yeah. So. You sign up. Yep. You head to boot camp. Let's talk about boot camp because my experience in boot camp would be vastly, both <laughs> from just the time frame and from the type. Yeah. Vastly different. Boot camp terms. was it was challenging. So when I was in high school, I I struggled with confidence. Mm -hmm. I I was kind of like that person that would always like hide in the shadows, never want to speak up. I was never part of the the popular clique. I wasn't a jock. I was you know scrawny and skinny and you know the thin kid and i just kind of disappeared into the shadows um so never really had that that confidence that i could do anything mm. um and then going to basic training it was i mean i already felt low on the totem pole and they broke you down even lower mm -hmm. uh so it was definitely that. challenging physically and mentally but slowly you start to just build that confidence up and more and more and day after day after day it was just like all right you start to to i, I guess the best way you could describe it is you form this like little chip on your shoulder mm. but it's not a chip from like cockiness it's that chip where it's just it sits with confidence where you can get through anything because yeah we were told to do some weird stuff like you have to get through this obstacle course but you can't do x y and z and you're looking at it going, well, why can't we do X, Y, and Z? And it was all problem-solving skills. Mm. And it was just designed to make you think, I hate using this term, but think outside the box and get a different perspective on it. And once I kind of tapped into that, it was basic training got easier. Mm. Once I flipped my perspective, people were like, oh, you know, we have to get up and run four or five miles and oh man this sucks this this is really difficult this is tough but i looked at it and i was like yeah like where else can i get up run five miles go have a, a solid breakfast but then go shoot weapons and throw grenades and play with claymores all day all right because they i think what are you guys saying the army everyone's an infantryman but first yeah so what was that what was that training like coming from being a kid to next thing you know you're putting it, rounds downrange. It was weird being growing up for 18 years and being told like taking a life is is not good. Mm -hmm. Taking life is not good. We don't do that. But now you're thrown in an environment where you're learning how to take a life mm -hmm. and where when you do have to use it in a time of conflict and a time of war that you will be putting these skills to the test and you will have to tap into these skills. And it was just you could see a lot of people struggling with it morally because they were just like, this is, this goes against everything I believe in. Mm -hmm. So you kind of had to realize that it was training that you were going to use to survive when the crap did hit the fan mm -hmm. in that situation. Um, so yeah, it was a little bit of a struggle to, to kind of wrap your head around that. That's, that's interesting. Um, normally I wouldn't, I wouldn't really think of that, that the people would kind of struggle with that yeah. in boot camp knowing that i mean for all intents and purposes what we do in the military is that we're honed to be lethal machines 
through one facet or another. Yep. You know, you guys a lot more, you know, up close and personal in a level of degrees where, you know, in the Navy, we like hitting the pew pews from long range, (laughs) you know, making big booms. But we all know in some way or another, we're contributing to what what could be, you know, acts of violence in Mm -hmm. defense of. Yeah. You know, so I don't think I saw anybody struggle with that within naval boot camp but it, yeah it's, it, I, but I, I guess it's very more apparent because i guess for you guys for us it's you know you're so many degrees removed the cook is so many degrees removed the radium in i mean we're not as many degrees removed but we right. we, we see a lot you know because <laughs> we get some pretty cool well, technology so since but. i work on the sub base now i get to talk to a lot of individuals who just come from boot camp mm-hmm. and i'm very interested in their experiences and stuff and what i've gathered is if you look at Army and Marine boot camp and then you look at Navy boot camp, everything is flip-flopped. So in the Army boot camp, you're taught how to be a soldier. You're taught how to be that that machine to just go out there and, and take a life, right? You're taught the fundamentals of war. Then you're taught your job. Whereas in yeah, Navy boot camp, hey, yeah, it's backwards. You flip it where yeah. it's like, hey, we're going to teach you how to do your job, and we're going to teach you like the um, this stuff about the Navy and all this stuff, mm-hmm. and then we're going to teach you how to be in the Navy. Yeah, we were <clears throat> we were taught how to be sailors first, you know, and then if our job dictated, yeah, you know, how to how to put bad guys in the dirt yep. if, if necessary. Yeah, it's completely reversed. But yeah, boot camp boot camp was kind of funny. The mental mind games that they played was they would find everything and anything just to screw with you. Did you secretly love that? Yes. Some and guys no. do. Some guys yes like they, no. they love it. They thrive off it. <laughs> I was one of those guys that was just like, yeah, so let's go. I didn't like it at first, but then when I finally caught on to this, like this one specific incident that happened when I knew they were screwing with me mm-hmm. and then me, I'm always sarcastic. So then I found the opportunity to kind of be sarcastic back to them but they couldn't do anything because it was I was abiding by their rules that they put in place. So they kind of had to just let it go. Mm-hmm. So the rule was is when you go to the chow hall is there's a certain way you stand with your tray, a certain way that you move, a certain way that you get to your table, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as you get to your table, you turn around and you go get your, your beverages. Mm-hmm. The rule was is you had to have a glass of milk or juice and water. Okay, mm-hmm. That was the rule. So... I went and got my juice and I got a glass of chocolate milk. Mm-hmm. Well, I kind of filled the glass of chocolate milk just a little bit too much. So as I was walking, I, I was afraid it was going to spill on the on the floor. So as I'm taking a step, I take a sip, right? Mm-hmm. As I'm walking right past the table with all the drill sergeants there. So I'm stopped. And all of a sudden, my drill instructor was just like, uh, they couldn't pronounce my last name. Mm-hmm. So they, they called me Kamikaze. So they were like, Kappa, Kappa, Kama, Kamikaze. <laughs> and I, I was like, yes, drill sergeant. And they were like, uh, what were you doing? And I'm like, I'm walking back to my table. And they were like, no, no, no. You just took a sip while you were walking to your table. And I, in our chow hall, that's drinking and driving. And I'm like, <laughs> and I'm like, all right, where's this going? So like, where are you from? I'm like, Connecticut drill sergeant. And they're like, what is the, what is the penalty for drinking and driving? And I'm like, I don't know drill sergeant. I've never got hit for drinking and driving because I'm not of age. And he was like, well, just take a guess. And I'm like, four to six years, I guess. <laughs> like I just threw numbers out there, right? Mm-hmm. Not knowing what was going to happen. So they were like, all right, 
we'll, we'll split it down the middle five. And I was like, okay. So he's like, drink. And I'm looking at him. He's like, drink the milk. So I drank the milk. He's like, go back and refill it. Oh. So I was like, okay. So I went back, refilled it, came back. He's like, drink. So drank it. Made me do that five times, right? So here I am. I just drank five glasses of chocolate milk. Now I'm in Fort Jackson, South Carolina, mm -hmm. right? September, it's still their summertime or whatever. So I'm standing there after the fifth glass. And he's like, all right, go back to your table. So I do an about face and I start walking back to the um, the uh, the place where you get your chocolate milk from. And he's like, where the hell do you think you're going? So I do another about face. I was like, well, drill sergeant, the rule is, is that when I'm sitting there eating my breakfast, I have to have a glass of water, juice, and or glass of milk. Correct? And he was like, that is the rule. I'm like, as you can see, my chocolate milk is empty. And that all of a sudden, the look on his face was like, you got me. You got me. So here I am getting a sixth glass of chocolate milk, knowing I'm going to regret this, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> go back to my table. I finish my meal, drink it. And then obviously we go out to like PT in the hot sun and stuff. And I'm kind of like the the scene from Anchorman where it's like he breaks up with his girl and he's walking around uh, San Diego and he's like, milk was a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> it's so damn hot. Milk was a bad choice. I'm stuck in a glass cage of emotion. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, it, once you can get past those, those mind games and just get past the fact that they're, they're not there to harm you. Mm -hmm. They're there to help you. And then once you see everything that they do is help, it just becomes easier. Mm -hmm. And then, it was, I never had, like I said, that confidence. And at the end of basic training, we have this thing, it's called the FTX, the field training exercise. It's where you take everything that you just learned for the last six, or I'm sorry, eight weeks, and you put it to use in a four day training, five day training exercise. So you have this like 10, 15 mile, uh, you're out in the field, then you have to rock 15 miles back. But in between that ruck, there's an exercise where you kind of go down this long corridor and there's like these concrete walls set like on a 45 degree angle. And then you're told to look up. And when you see the flare, you scale the wall, drop down, and you low crawl mm -hmm. to the end until you're told to stop. This felt like you're low crawling for like 10 football fields. Wow. The entire time you're low crawling, they're shooting rounds over your head. They're like... Uh, having like simulation explosions and stuff. They're screaming at you over bullhorns. There's loudspeakers. They're creating mass confusion. Is this in the dark? Yeah. Because wow. you see tracer rounds too. Um, and you see like little fires and stuff like that. This is to create mass confusion and to just basically have you like take everything that you've learned and then put it to use right then and there. How did some guys react to that? There were some people that froze mm -hmm. um, and some people that, you know, it took them longer than most to, to get through it, but everyone got through it. Uh, and then you, you grab your stuff and then you finish that ruck back. Mm -hmm. And by the time we get back, it's like four in the morning. We're going on a couple hours of sleep. Um, during the hike back, you're, you know, you have a simulation attack. So you have to basically like come off of the road, drop down, protect the, you know, the people around you, stuff like that. And there was people like nodding off, they're falling asleep. So you have to look out for the people to your left and to your right. 
And then as soon as you come back to the barracks, they have this like bonfire going. And that is the moment that you are called a soldier. Mm. That is the moment that you develop that confidence. And it was right there. It was kind of like that little tiny burning ember of confidence. That's when it sparked. That's when it was just like, <laughs> nice. And it was after that, it was like, yeah, I, I can get through, I can get through pretty much anything at this point. Yeah. I think Nick and I did some, something in a similar fashion. Um, I won't go into details about it because I'm supposedly, we're still not supposed to talk about that training test that we do, but either way, it was, <laughs> it was, it was meant to simulate about as real life scenarios as possible yep. cause, cause mass confusion. Yeah. Do you, do you felt like when, when that, the onset of that, do you feel like you, you maybe like froze for a moment, then reacted or were you one of those guys that when that happens, you seem to become even more focused at first, the flight, flight fight or freeze response kicked in and I froze for a hot second. Mm -hmm. It's because we knew what we were getting ourselves into because mm -hmm. uh, we were told this is what's going to happen. They kind of like pre-warned us. Yep. Um, and then you're all looking up for the flare and you're just waiting and waiting and waiting. They never told you when it was going to go off. They it said it wasn't going to be long because everyone's tired, exhausted, and you know they want to get everyone back. But all of a sudden you see that flare and then you're just like, oh boy, it's go time. And then it was... Um, as soon as you went over that wall and you dropped down, that's when everything started. You know, you, your uh, the physio physiological response to the stressor, just everything sharpened, right? You started honing in on certain things. You started kind of going back through that mental Rolodex to remember, okay, this is how I do this. This is how I get through this obstacle, how I'm supposed to turn my head to get under this piece of barbed wire so I don't cut my, you know, face open or whatever. Um, and <laughs> and it was all just instantaneously. And it was, you know, it just came back to you within a heartbeat. And then next thing you know, you're you're low crawling and you just kind of get like thumped on the top of the Kevlar and they're like, all right, you can stop crawling. And next thing you know, you're you're done that evolution. Yeah. And you can get up and you got mud and sand in places you never knew existed and you're just like all right let's grab our stuff and and finish this yeah that's um that's a it's a very different experience than what we would receive in the navy um because i mean you guys are taught to well to, to fight the enemy yeah for us we're taught to fight the boat yep Right, because that's the number one thing that's going to kill us. That's a, you know, we save the boat, we save the shipmates. Well, you you train yeah. for your environment, though. That's yep. the thing. Like your environment is the boat, so that's like the first thing you have to take care of. Our environment is the field. Yep. Our environment is out there in front of or around or near the enemy. So we have to train and be prepared for that environment. So yep. it's not. I don't want to say it's like flip flopped and backwards, but when you look at the fundamentals yeah. of it, to me in my that's head, point. it's it's kind of flip-flopped right yeah like i think basic training should be universal everyone should learn you know a certain way uh all across the board and then you go and learn your job and learn your environment yeah i think for i think for the the hand the hands-on guns branches that yeah you guys you know everybody's trained to be an infantryman first yep. and i think for the navy it's everyone's trained to be a d seaman first yeah right because you know we got a shell around us so what so we get hit, what's that causing? Fire, flooding, every type of casualty you can think of. We got to yeah. be able to combat that while also delivering medical aid if necessary. So 
that's a that's a vastly different experience, and in my opinion, kind of an exciting one. There are times <laughs> it was like, man, you know, what would that have been like? That sounds like fun. That's, it was. That fun. sounds like a blast. It was fun. Then, and the thing is, is as you progress through basic training, I'm pretty sure it was like this in the Navy as well. Like when you first get there, you're nothing, right? Your mm -hmm. drill instructors look at you like your piece of chewed up bubble gum but as you progress through basic training they start to develop more respect um so then they start having fun with you know everyone there where it's like you there was only a certain amount of spots that they had to where they would allow people to shoot like the 50 cal mm -hmm. so they had to make it fair so they started having like contests and stuff it was like who could throw the grenade and get it closest to the target and they would just keep track of it and then they would just have this contest where it was like it boiled down to like the the number of people that they had allotted to shoot the 50 cal mm -hmm. or the at4 rocket launcher and stuff um and luckily enough like i got to shoot both mm -hmm. and that was like it was just fun waking up at four in the morning go for a five six mile run mm -hmm. you know breakfast and then i'm out there shooting the 50 cal and at4 rocket launcher like that's <laughs> you, awesome you, you can't do that on a normal monday right yeah no we did that too but i mean yeah. it was just it's, oh you threw the grenade closest to the target yeah. oh you get to go shoot this it's oh you you cleaned the, the head better than anybody else <laughs> now you get to clean all the heads yeah well i got to go through the gas else. chamber twice so there you go i so. love i love that <laughs> I, I, well it wasn't my fault though so I, we were going through the gas chamber and they there was a whole process and the drill instructor came up and the back part of my gas mask i guess like the clasp broke when i put it back on and they were trying to help like secure it but what happened was is the drill instructor wasn't thinking and he took his hand and he covered the front. So every time I breathed in, the mask was collapsing on my face. And then they're like, breathe, just breathe. And I'm trying to yell, I can't. And I'm trying to push his hand away so I can basically, you know, clear the mask and whatnot. And he kept putting his hand on the front. So when you put your hand on the front, you breathe in. That's when you basically create that seal mm -hmm. around your face. So no air can, can get in at that point. So I kept pushing them out. So they finally grabbed me and throw me out. And they were like, he never completed the gas chamber. And I was like, okay. So they were like, you go in with that squad. I'm like, son of a. <laughs> so I had to go through it all over again. So I'm standing there with the, the squad. I got snots dripping everywhere. I'm trying to fix the gas mask. And they're like, how bad was it? <laughs> you know. And I'm looking like I just got face planted a 50-pound bag of cut up onions. I'm like, oh, it's not that bad. <laughs> Yeah, it's a total. It's a total different experience. Um, I think we, they didn't call them gas chambers. I think they called them confidence chambers, something like that. So, but it's the it's the same exact thing. You yeah, know, we take off our mask. We we recite something. Um, I was told I, I couldn't go through it at first because I had a severe head cold, and I kept begging to go through it because I'm pretty sure well, that, it, it was going to head cold, it. right? <laughs> and so I took it off and took off the mask, and I just was. You know, Whoa, you know, Ric Flair style <laughs> and everything came out and I was like, can I go again? Like, I, I loved it. I thought it was a blast, but I just, I, I, I wanted that. My question for you is well, what was your first night like? So for me, I'll give you my example is that, um, I was told by my father, you know, you're going to get there. They always time it. So you get there in the middle of the night, all right? You're going to go through all of the things you have to go through. People are screaming at you to put the super chain together drop down, get naked, put your tidy whities on, do this, do that, and you're just going to be exhausted. And then finally, you're going to hit the rack. He's like, don't even go to sleep. 
He's like, because about two hours later, they're going to come in. They're going to, you got two hours. Yeah. Something like that. I don't know. Um, they're going to stay at the Marriott. I guess so. Right. (laughs) (laughs) It's not, it's not the Air Force. Um, do you have somebody come up with like, like, hello, it's time to wake up. No, so you said that because the moment you shut your eyes, they're going to come in and a trash can is going to get hurled. Yep. And so I laid there like this, just waiting. I was so excited for some reason. I was excited about that. Yeah. I wanted I wanted them to come in and and just be the brutal boot camp that I imagined. Now, unfortunately, I didn't get that. It was <laughs> no, probably I, one of the easiest experiences that I had while I was in the Navy. I think but, we got a total of like a half hour. We did get in the middle of the night, and then you immediately start the in-processing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you go through that yelling, clear the bag, you can't have this, get rid of your contraband, all this mm-hmm. other type of stuff. Uh, once that was cleared out, and um, they were sort of done with you. It was like, all right, here's your rack. This is where you're sleeping. And I think it was like three, three thirty in the morning yep. when we finally got there. And next thing you know, at four thirty in the morning, they're in there just raising hell. And we, uh, they did light PT that day, and then we're standing outside the chow hall. And all I heard was, don't lock your knees, don't lock your knees, don't lock your knees, don't lock your knees. And the next thing you know, I'm waking up on the curb. And I was like, I locked my knees, didn't I? Oh, <laughs> because we're so tired, exhausted, yeah. we're trying not to fall over. And if you lock your knees, you're going to pass out. And I guess I had just locked my knees, and I guess I had just passed out. But I found out, too, that if you do that, that's the quickest way to get to the front of the chow line. Winner. <laughs> winning. You just didn't read because we're winning. <laughs> I found the loophole. Um, but yeah, it was – I I always tell people, like, if I could go back to basic training day one, I would. Yeah, I say that too. It, it was I'm, fun. I'm just curious I how I would it. do it now. I absolutely loved know? it. We had the confidence or the victory tower, which was, like, the rappelling and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, all, so the, cool, it was, all the cool guy. Yeah, yeah, we got to play with all the cool stuff jealous <laughs> i'm jealous that's for sure yep. so you graduate boot camp yep we're in the latter part of the 90s all right what's your first station you go to so i'm up in um i was part of the 883rd medical company combat stress mm-hmm. so the unit that i was with was filled with all the psychiatrists and psychologists um the the head doctors mm-hmm. and i was part of the headquarters unit so i was the at the time, I wasn't the lead mechanic, but I was part of like supply, the cooks, um, the generator mechanics and all that. And we were attached to the 804th Medical Brigade. Mm-hmm. So I wound up doing what was called was Active Guard Reserve. Mm-hmm. So it's a component of the reserve unit, which you show up. It's like a nine to five job. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you still drill with them on the weekends and you still do your two weeks a year and stuff like that. Because our motor sergeant got crossed uh, leveled to a different unit that was deploying. Um, so I just wound up doing that. So, so I was up in Massachusetts a lot. So how, how does that work? So for the Navy, we're, we're pretty cut and dry. All right. So you, you join, you go to boot camp, and the first thing you do is you go to your A school. Yep. All right. Yeah, um, you go to what's called as your AIT, yeah. so, Advanced Individual Training. Um, you go to your A school, and then once you're, you're done, you're, you know, you've been training your rate, the first thing you do, I think, for the majority of everybody in the Navy is you go to a, sh- a seagoing command, right? So you go to a boat or ship of some fashion, right? Then you do sea duty, shore duty, yep. sea duty, shore duty, sea duty, shore duty, for as long as you're in. So how does it work with you guys? You guys don't really have so sea and there was, shore. There's a n- number of ways that you could do it. So if you go 
like active duty army, then you do like your your boot camp, your AIT, and then you go to your um, your command, your station, duty station, whatever you want to call it, uh, whether it's overseas or in the states. Uh, if you're reserve or national guard, then what you do is you go to your actual reporting unit. Mm -hmm. So I started out in the reserve component. Mm -hmm. And then when my motor sergeant got cross leveled, there was that spot for AGR because I was going to go active duty. So I didn't know if I was going to stay in because I was like, well, I don't know if the military is for me. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm just going to, I guess, try it out, I guess you can call it. But I loved it. It was, I, I guess you could say, like, I found my place. Mm -hmm. um, so when the opportunity to do AGR was there, I took that opportunity. And I basically just became the, the lead mechanic or lead motor sergeant for, at the time I wasn't the sergeant, but basically the lead motor sergeant for mm -hmm. that unit and just took care of all the vehicles and stuff. And that led into two deployments and, yeah, wow. <laughs> taking care of a lot. <laughs> so... We get through 2001 September hits. Yep. You're how old? I can tell you how old I was. I was in eighth grade watching this stuff on TV. Uh, but you're in a totally different position than me. So I was like 21, I think it was. Yeah, 21. Yeah. I mean, world changes. What's going through your head at that point in time? Uh, my first initial reaction was is when it happened, um, I remember hearing, hey, you know, um, World Trainers, uh, World Trade Center got hit, and uh, I was like, okay. And then the then I heard, oh, the second tower fell, and I turned around. And I was like, how many towers are there? Um, and immediately, as soon as the second tower fell, like my phone went off, and they're like, hey, we're not, you know, being deployed, but we're on standby. Mm -hmm. um, so just just be just know that. So I was like, all right, cool. So at the time, again, we were a combat stress unit. So we are the unit or the what main are, component. Are, so combat stress unit, uh, quickly explain what that is. I'm not quite following. So basically it was a unit that specialized in like the mental health component. Okay. So we would, um, so in the first, we didn't get deployed in 2001. Mm -hmm. uh, we were pulled off standby because there really wasn't a, I don't want to say a need for it. But in 2003, we that's when they saw a need for it because that's when we saw a lot of people getting um, just like mentally affected from the war and stuff or from being over there. So they uh, deployed our unit. We landed in Camp Camp Airfjan, Kuwait, uh, and then I did multiple trips into Iraq. I spent a lot of time taking trips up to the enemy prisoner of war camp um, and dealing with that. Um, then... In 2003, we were there when the war initially started. Mm -hmm. uh, and then there was a situation where there was a Marine unit that went into some part of Iraq and they were going through some like cemetery or something. And the insurgents were hiding like in the behind the tombstones and they were hiding like in the area. Wow. And when the Marine unit came in to basically kind of go through to get to the town, the insurgents popped up and took out a lot of the Marines. Um, the survivors of that were greatly affected. And this is when combat stress units were basically kind of just popping up all over the place. This is where combat stress units were like, okay, we need more of these. So a combat stress unit is a, is a place where everybody can go do work, but kind of decompress and work on themselves. Yeah. Thing. So we, I mean, in, in the Navy, we have somewhat similar things, but they're just, 
they're commands that they happen just to be pushed to there. Um, I think a Virginia Marmac was one of them, mm-hmm. um, which is with a mid Atlantic region center, whatever. I don't remember what it was called. I worked there at one point in time yeah. um, where it's all technical stuff. So we're, we're doing all the repairs for the boats. Um, I was there uh, and we had guys there for, you know, the typical, you know, medical stuff like myself, right. Where we're going through lots of physical therapy. So it's not conducive to the schedule of the boat. And then people also just dealing with other issues. Um, for me, for some reason, they wanted to put me in the 25 millimeter gun shop. I mean, which I had zero complaints over. I thought that was awesome. <laughs> and then it was actually, uh, learned some pretty useful skills for myself. Um, why they wouldn't put me 50 feet down the hall in the mass and antenna shop for submarines. I have no idea, but they're like, you're an electronic technician on submarines. You know, all kinds of stuff. I'm like, Whoa, buddy, <laughs> it's a, we're not, it's not as good as you think. But, um, so the, there's, they stand up these units for basically guys to be able to continue to contribute, but take a break from the combat. Yeah. So it was basically, if you take a look, so we were part of the 804th medical brigade. So if you look at say like a, an entire medical outfit, you're going to have the different components of it, right? You're yeah. going to have your surgeons and all the different aspects of anything that deals with medical. Mm-hmm. But then you also have to have that mental health side, the licensed clinical social worker side of it to where someone can come in and uh, get that help for dealing with the stressors and, you know, dealing with uh, PTSD and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and after 2003, that's when uh, they saw like a huge need for it. So uh, we spent most of 2003 overseas, came back. And then in 2005, we were deployed again. And we were gone from 2005 until like late 2006. Yeah. And that's when I spent uh, my base, I guess you can call it, was LSA Anaconda mm-hmm. um, or Balad, Balad Air Base. But it was nicknamed Mortaritaville because every single day you got mortared. It was to the point wow. where it was like 10 o'clock in the morning. If you didn't get mortared at least twice, we were like, are they sick? Did somebody call in sick today? Like, should we go check on them? Is it a holiday? <laughs> right. So, I mean, it was one of those things where it's like, hey, hey welcome to Mortaritaville. And it, it, it was expected. Mm-hmm. So, uh, did multiple trips, multiple, multiple trips to places all over iraq spent a lot of time in baghdad um repairing vehicles and convoys on the back of a chinook or in the back of a black hawk so that was actually kind of fun wow so were you revved up to go for your first deployment or are you apprehensive about it a little bit of both yeah some guys some guys get revved up i remember i remember sitting in in toulon and we're getting the word about libya and you know captain says don't go more than a mile yeah, I don't think anybody went more than fifty feet. You know, we, <laughs> yeah. were, we were ready to go, but it's a different story for us. Yeah, you know? there was a lot of people who, when we got the orders for deployment, they were distraught and they were like, "I just joined for the college, I just joined for the education," and I'm like, yeah. "You joined for the wrong reason." Then. That's that's an unfortunate right? thing. It part of me was like, "Okay, I'm now getting to put my skill set and uh, what I learned <laughs> and what I was trained for, uh, potentially put it to use." Mm-hmm. I'm doing what I signed up for. So that part was like, to me, I kind of fulfilled my contract at that point. Yeah. Um, it was, it was tough though. You, did you know, what, I was you did like, what a soldier was supposed to do. Yeah. 22, 23 years old, you know, I'm being flown into a war zone and it was, you know, 
the war hadn't started yet, mm-hmm. but still, like you landed in Kuwait and then you have your weapon and they're passing out magazines um, and they passed me one. They're like, you need to sit at the front of the bus. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, why? And they're like, well, because if the bus gets attacked, you need to protect it. And I'm here, I'm 22, 23 years old. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> oh, all right. <laughs> you know, and it was at that point where it's like, now it's time to grow up. Right. Mm-hmm. So I had to grow up really, really fast. How much, um, I mean, so this is, I mean, like you said, 2003. Yep. Push a little past that. If my math is correct, there's not a whole lot of Desert Storm guys left. So how much combat experience is in there amongst your guys? Not a lot. Yeah. That can be a nerve-wracking thing. Lot. I know for Nick and I, when we get, we get to a new boat, we turn around and all the faces look pretty young. And we're like, oh. There was That's a little, <laughs> little nerve-wracking. There was a couple, know. but there wasn't a lot. There yeah. wasn't a lot. There was maybe less than a handful. But, yeah, it was still very nerve-wracking, you know, just. And that was the thing. It was like you had to. They didn't ask you if you remembered your mm-hmm. training. It was, here's the magazine. You are now going to do this job. And they walk away. Oh. And it was like, okay, then you had to have that confidence in you. Um, so it, w- it was very difficult. You know, being that young and still learning how to deal with stressors because, you know, we deal with stressors through our prefrontal cortex. And in males, it doesn't fully develop until we're 28. Yeah. So at 22, 23 years old, I'm still trying to learn how to deal with the the stressors of life. I'm still considered a baby in some sense. Mm -hmm. And here I am being thrown into the situation. I'm like, all right, now it's time to time to buck up. Let's go. So thrown into so many different situations had we had we started deploying reserve yet at that yeah. point in time yeah that must have been a hell of an experience yep working with some of those guys that it wasn't bad. I, can, I can only imagine because you know i met some of the guys in the reserves that you know they're all for it go do what do what you got to do and everything and then some that for a lot of the same reasons you know i joined for college well, look at it this way this the reserve and national guard like i know a lot of people will kind of crap on them and they kind of give them a lot of you know, gruff about stuff. Mm -hmm. But if you peel back the layers of the onion, these people train, yeah, one weekend a month, two weeks a year, but their stuff has to be squared away. They have to be ready to go at a moment's notice. So they have to be organized. Their time management has to be on point. Mm -hmm. They have to know their stuff and they have to be very proficient in it because whether they deal with it in their civilian lives or they're, you know, when they're not drilling and stuff. So if it's something that they only deal with in the military, they have to be a subject matter expert in it to basically deal with it one weekend a month and then come back the next month and deal with it. And in a moment's notice, be like, okay, you're being deployed. Now you're doing it full time. So it's, they have to be very proficient in their, in their field. So yeah, they, they will get a lot of garbage for it, but at the same time, I have a lot of respect. Yeah, that's that's actually, you know, I'm happy you said that. Um, because from what I understand, too, a lot of the reserve components are former active duty guys. Yeah, have just there's a lot of like, people who will. Yeah, I still like the benefits and stuff and doing cool guy shit's still fun. Yeah. But uh, I want to spend some more time with the family. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, I mean, that's that's yep. good to know because you, you always, I mean, I'll be honest, we always had the, the worry of being like, oh, how, how well are these guys getting trained? You know, what are we sending them to yeah. with one week in a month, two weeks out of the year? But if you're pairing them with active duty guys, if a majority or a, a, let's say a decent portion are former active duty, you know, if you can look around, it's it's a lot more comforting to look around and know, yeah, I'm, I'm comfortable with this, with the guys yep. that I have, because I got some experience here that 
we know what to do when, when things happen. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think the most nerve wracking times is when you're like, well, it looks like I'm the oldest guy here. <laughs> I'm the most experienced one. That might yeah. be an issue. So, yeah. So you said first, first deployment was what? Uh, 2003. 2003. And then the second one was from 2005 to 2006. Yeah. Um, I mean, we won't, we won't go into the deployments itself. Uh, I can only imagine uh, just from 2000, 2003, 2006. Dude, you were, you were out there doing cool guy shit while I was still in high school. Uh, yeah, kind of. <laughs> yeah, either way, you were out there doing stuff. Yeah. But I was trying to get my license. Yeah, one of the so I actually one of the the moments I remember I was sitting in the back of a Blackhawk and we were going from uh, Blood Air Base to Baghdad and normally they never took um, a lot of times they never took the same route but I remember certain landmarks and stuff so we were getting kind of close to Baghdad and all of a sudden the uh, chopper just goes whoosh, just takes off and I'm like what the hell is going on here. Uh, well, it turns out that the the helicopter needed to provide like support or something, and like every time you took off, you'd always fly over a certain area, and the door gunners would sit there and they'd have targets, and they would basically just lay down some rounds just to basically you know make sure their weapons were firing correctly. Um, so we're sitting there and we're hovering over uh, a part of Iraq, and we're just sitting there hovering, and we're they're providing support for the troops on the ground. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, man, I'm like 25, 26 years old. Like I'm not even 30 yet. And I'm, I'm here doing this. Like, this is, this is life-changing experience. And at yeah. that moment I was like, yep, I'm going to reenlist. Yeah. Like, this is the moment that I'm going to reenlist. I'm going to make a career out of this. I had, a, I had a buddy in the reserve who felt the same way. He said, you never feel more like a badass when you're in the, you're in the back of a helicopter flying at dawn over yeah. the mountains of Afghanistan. He's like, the only thing that was missing was Creedence Clearwater Revival. <laughs> and I was like, well, you know. I would have to say yeah. the most badass thing was is when we um, we had to do a mission where we dropped supplies at the these different air bases. And uh, since I was also cross-trained as a combat lifesaver, uh, which is basically just a quick reaction medic, um, I got to go on this mission and just be there in case anything happened. But I also helped in the the supply drop mission where it was, you know, we'd get up and we'd help push the pallets off the, the back of the, um, the Chinook. Mm -hmm. And it was the coolest thing because we're at night flying, the back of the Chinook is open and we're sitting there and yeah, we're strapped in, we're all, you know, uh, secured in and whatnot. And all of a sudden I see the guy next to me, he goes like this and then he leans over and he yells, hold on. So I'm like, okay so i just <laughs> to what like what so i'm like holding on to the straps like this and then all of a sudden like the thing just kind of dips to the side like mm -hmm. very aggressively and then the chinook in back of us all you see is just the flares just coming out mm. and i'm just like that is the most badass thing i've ever seen <laughs> were those chafing flares yeah wow yeah it was just the coolest thing i've ever seen just sitting there and just like we're banking like this so i'm like like that looking up and all you see is just the flares just like that was the shit behind you guys yeah it was doing that yeah and they do that for what reason um just to kind of ward off anything coming up mm -hmm. that might take you down oh and the other thing too is we're sitting there and that's and in I our hear, mind to be like this is awesome <laughs> like we're probably getting shot at we were yeah, and that's know, the thing. Like, so when we level off i start hearing tink 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 and i'm like 
what the hell's going on? <laughs> so when we finally landed, the mission's over and stuff, I was like, hey, what was that like tinking noise that, you know, when we were flying? It was like, oh, we were just getting shot at. And I'm like, you say that so nonchalantly, like you're just not even worried about it. And he was like, actually, we're not. He's like, because there is one certain spot that they have to hit that will take the entire thing down. And I'm not going to say, he showed me where it was and I'm not yeah. going to say where it was, but it's, yeah, there is nothing to worry about. Wow. The little tiny pop shots and stuff, which we experienced on convoys and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, we wouldn't even return fire on most of those. So it was just, you know, those little pop shots, whatnot, trying to get a rise out of you or just trying to get a reaction, get draw you out of the vehicle. Mm -hmm. It was the same thing when you're in the air. Yeah, so. I it's kind of hard to imagine. It just sounds like just continuously being circled by buzzards. Yeah, pretty just much. Trying to pester you. Yeah, pretty much. That's all it was. <laughs> that's that's nuts. I mean, yeah. unfortunately, so, it wasn't like that for everybody. But yeah, that's that's interesting. So you you had a time span between the deployments mm -hmm. and everything. What were you doing between? Were you back stateside? Yeah, I was again? working. I was working on the vehicles. Working on the vehicles. Yep. Getting yeah, maintaining everything, making sure they were at 100% uh, fully FMC, fully mission capable. Mm -hmm. So that was my job. Um, when you were working on the vehicles, were they like new vehicles that are coming in, just normal maintenance vehicles? Were you yeah, getting, it's normal maintenance. Were you getting vehicles shipped back to you? No. From no, because we had our own vehicles. Okay. We had our own lot of uh, everything from five tons and under. So it was M998 Humvees. We had some pickup trucks, um, deuce and a half. And then we also... I think it was, yeah, it was in between that time. We also got the LMTVs, mm -hmm. um, which is, a, I believe, if I remember correctly, it's a light light maintenance tactical vehicle. Mm -hmm. It was really, really awesome vehicle. Um, and we got to play with that for a little bit. But it was mainly just making sure that everything was was, was ready to go. Ready to deploy. Yeah, everything was just on the up and up and 100%. Yeah, Marmac, I did repairs. I had to do repairs on some equipment. Yeah. But you can very much tell it went through went through a hot zone it was bullet ridden yep. you named it you know exactly where it was and you're like oh yeah there was vehicles that we had like so our vehicles were shipped and they landed in uh kuwait and we had to get our vehicles from the shipyard or from wherever they landed but if they sat there for too long your vehicles were actually kind of um pillaged Mm -hmm. by other units and a lot of the times they were pillaged by <laughs> like about right <laughs> by like the special forces where they were like oh we need an alternator for our humvee and they would just go in they would rip the whole alternator out and they would leave or they would go in they would just rummage rummage through your vehicle and pull everything that they needed from you know three or four different humvees and they would just walk away with all the stuff and you're sitting here like, where did my windshield go? <laughs> it's being rangered up. That's what it's being done right now. So <laughs> all like you'd go there and you get all your vehicles together and be like three or four of them that weren't running because there'd be parts missing from the engine because people would actually go and pillage parts from those from those vehicles because if your stuff sat there for too long, it was fair game. Yeah. Yeah, it was tactical. It was tactically relocating your engine parts. Yeah. That's what it was. I think Nick Nick knows so. a little bit more than I do, but when the soft when the soft teams come on. And they ask for something, you don't tell them no. Yeah. <laughs> Even when they didn't ask for yep. it. <laughs> Pretty much. So, right? So, so yeah, that was, that was definitely a, 2005 to 2006 was the worst. Uh, obviously, out of the two, that was the worst deployment yeah. out of both of them. Probably the one that definitely had the most effect in uh, all the changes and whatnot, I guess you could say. Yeah. Um, going forward. So, gotcha. so, your last deployment ends. You come back stateside, 
Yeah. We're 2006. Yep. Rolling into 2007. All right. We have a little Mr. Seth Sharp that's supposed to be graduating from <laughs> high school. Didn't graduate from high school. All right. He's thinking about joining the service. Yeah. So. Um, and what are, you, what are you doing then? We get back and my whole plan was to reenlist. Uh, but I sustained an injury when I was overseas. Yep. Um, and because of the injury and me taking one of two roads mm -hmm. um the retention officer was talking to me and he was like look with the the extensive injury that you are going through right now he's like it's probably going to be best for you just to get out yeah and i was like uh okay i'm like why and he kind of broke it down for me a little bit um and i didn't want to get into the the whole mix up of getting a reenlistment bonus and then have to be processed out and then possibly pay the reenlistment bonus back yeah. and all this other type of stuff. So I was like, you know what? I'm just going to get out. But also within that time frame of talking to the retention officer, mm -hmm. I found out that my wife at the time was pregnant. Mm -hmm. And I remember being young and my dad being deployed. And I was like, I don't want to put my kid through that. That's rough. Like that's, I remember needing my dad and needing to talk to him and wanting him there and him not and it just killed me that i didn't have that and i didn't want to put my my child through that so i was like all right i'm gonna get out so may of 2007 is when is when i got out so may 2007 yep. you're getting out after your last deployment coming back purple heart on your chest nope no nope. no no purple heart okay um and to spend more time with your family which is, in my opinion, a pretty justifiable reason. I think that's why I got out. Yep. Um, I tell you right now, from personal experience, there's nothing more saddening when you go to see your, your kid for the first time after your first deployment, and they're scared of you because they don't quite recognize yeah. you. And didn't want that. That that sucks. So Did not want that. But so you get out, when you, where you start working. So uh, I'm a communications technician for Comcast or Xfinity, um, and I kind of just stay there for a bunch of years. Uh, because of my injury and what Comcast, what I was doing for them, like lugging a ladder and all that other type of stuff, it just aggravated the injury even more. So in 2011, I had to go through a laminectomy, which is basically where they shave a disc down in your back. Mm -hmm. um, then I got into nuclear security, uh, so I was an arm guard up here for Millstone or Dominion. So okay. I basically was just an arm guard. Um, 2013, I went through my first spinal fusion. Um, and then 2000, December of 2016, I found out that I was going to need another surgery. And then March of 2017 is when I went through a second spinal fusion just to kind of hopefully fix everything. That's a lot. Which it really didn't. So No, it never does. <laughs> I mean, it, it fixed it to some degree, but I mean, I'm still having like issues where the leg will give out. It'll go numb. Um, I'll be walking up or down a set of stairs and my leg is like, hey, not today. And then it just decides yeah. to. <laughs> I'll just slide down from today, underneath you know? me or whatever. Um, but, but yeah. So you, you get out and you're, you're transitioning to civilian life. How, how, how did that go for you? That was rough. I kind of felt like I didn't fit in. Mm. Um, you come from this world of, of structure and order. Um, 
from like stuff being done in a timely manner um especially when you're when you're overseas and you're in a in a war zone and stuff it's like stuff has to get done um we had little to no telecommunications like our internet was worse than dial up um phones would be cut out in a heartbeat if you know we were getting attacked or if they thought something was going to happen so trying to communicate with family or communicate with another base whether you needed parts or you needed to arrange your own travel like at the flight line and stuff it was difficult and then when i get home here I'm sitting there looking at stuff. I'm like, we have everything at our fingertips. Why can't we get this done? Like we can call, uh, send an email. I don't think text messages were, you know, big at that time, but it's like, even if they were, it's like, we can send a text message and communicate with someone instantly and we still can't get stuff done. And I just felt like there's a lot of agitation. There was a lot of frustration with it where it's like, there was no sense of urgency either. Mm -hmm. It's like you wanted to do something. People are like, yeah, we'll get to it. Yeah, we'll do it tomorrow. So, I mean, we, we talk we talk a lot about um, we and just kind of the community in general talk a lot about post-traumatic stress um, coming out of combat zones and things like that. Um, I don't think one of the things that we talk about a whole lot is just the transitioning stress from that yeah. alone because from what I've been able to, to – surmise myself is that it, it's not just a, a combat related thing it's just a military service mm -hmm. thing coming from that and i think when you start to couple the two together where one is dealing with your own issues dealing with you know the things that you might have gone through or seen where the other one is just dealing with everyday life and how you have to now do it differently interact yeah. differently um and that was that was rough for you at first yeah so I mean, it's, I don't want to say it's funny that you mentioned that, but one thing that like a lot of people don't realize or think about is so going from military and then uh, even working at Comcast, there was a uniform, right? Mm -hmm. You always had a shirt that they gave you and jeans and stuff because of the industry. And then you go into uh, armed security or any mm -hmm. sort of security, there's a uniform. Um, so fast forward to the position I'm in right now and it's, I get interviewed, I get hired and my... Uh, hiring letter or whatever it says you know it's business casual and what I have that exactly right <laughs> so I have this person at the center who is is kind of uh my representative so I'm you know emailing her I'm like hey I know this is going to sound like a really dumb question but what is business casual and she was like are you serious and she was um she's a navy veteran so she she got it. But when I told her that I've never been in a position where it was like I had the the freedom and the liberty to basically choose my own clothes for the working day, mm -hmm. <laughs> it kind of it kind of made sense to her. But yeah, there was a lot of stress in that. It was are are these considered jeans, mm -hmm. right? Because I wear pants that, you know, it's kind of like a jean material, but it's also like a, a khaki almost. So it's not really a khaki. Um so you can you can argue it both ways, but I'm like, is this business casual? Is it too not business casual? Do you like, feel like it stressed me out? <laughs> do you feel like you were trying to draw like boundary lines around or rules where there really isn't a rule? It's more of a general guideline. You know what I mean? Not really? It's it's like where this this like say a topic comes up or some type of regulation, you feel that it's a little too wishy-washy and you're like, why, why isn't this more regulated? Why? Yeah. So there's tell me exactly what needs to be done. Not just uh, I need something like this. Yeah. Tell me what is actually needed. Yeah. 
because I don't know how to function or yep. it's I have a hard time grasping what needs to get done when I don't have clear direction. Yeah, it's it's exactly like that. So I run um, on top of what I do for the Fleet and Family Support Center. I also help manage their uh, Facebook pages. Mm -hmm. And it was, oh, we're going to give you this stuff. We just need you to post it and come up with, you know, something to say. And after the first two or three posts, I went back and I was like, no, no, you want something posted? Give me what you want posted. The verbiage, the image, everything. It's copy paste post. That's all that it is. Like it's clear direction for me. I don't do, you know, the gray area, the black and white. It's, it's what I need. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think it stems back from, you know, the, the military, it's just, you know, this is how you're going to do it. This is going to be the outcome. Get it done. Done. Let's so, go. Let's talk about two things. One in re both in relation to, to transitioning stress, what are some, uh, like examples, of, of like personnel, like dealing with people that were difficult and then other ones just um, realizing that you don't do what you used to do anymore. Like com comparing your current job to what you had been doing for years. Do, it, do you find yourself comparing them a lot being like, you know, why, like I used to do this and now I do that, you know, and not it just really, dumb uh, I, because of what I do now in the civilian sector, it kind of relates to not exactly what I did in the military, but it mm -hmm. was within the same confines of it. Right. Yeah. So I do, uh, I'm a life skills educator. Mm -hmm. So a lot of what I do is a lot of the, um, help with the mental health side of things, but on a non-clinical basis. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to my work ethic, I see a lot of my work ethic stem from the military. Mm -hmm. Right? Like my time management skills are on point. Um, I'm cranking out stuff that where they're looking at it and they're like, we've never had this before in this type of, in your program before. I'm like, well, why not? It's, it's easy. And they're just like, we just never had it. And then I realized it's because of the way that I structured everything. It's like, I have a schedule. I have a structure, a time, a timeline for everything. And everything just runs like clockwork to where, I mean, Nick has seen it, you know, he comes into my office and he sees my whiteboard that's filled with dates and times and everything just rolls right into the next. And it's little missions that I have set up all throughout that base. And that's all that it is. It's little tiny missions that I, that I just complete. Gotcha. So you never, you never found yourself, whether it be the current job or the previous civilian jobs before that being like, you know, man, like five years ago, I was hanging out the back of a C-17. No. Now I'm sitting at this friggin' desk. No. That didn't hit you? Wow. It, I mean, it might've, but also at the same time, I look at the past as something that just lined me up for what I'm doing currently. I turn the past into a learning experience mm -hmm. and don't really dwell on it too much. You know, I made that decision. I made that choice. I can't change that decision or choice now. So why am I going to sit there and look back five years and go, man, I was doing this five years ago. Mm -hmm. Right. But also too, at the same time, five years ago, I wasn't projecting five years ahead going, I'm going to do this because I don't want to be sitting at a desk. Mm -hmm. Right. So I don't, I don't really harp. Why do you that think that much. bothers some guys? I, I can tell you right now, for me, it was just like, you know, shit, five years ago, you know, I was doing some pretty awesome, cool stuff that I'll never be able to talk about. Yeah. And now I'm dealing with this every day and it drives me insane. I, yeah. I still do that. I think it's day. because it's just the, it's the adrenaline. It's, you know, a lot of people will sit there and look at it and what they were doing five years ago was fun. There was that adrenaline rush. There was a hit of the dopamine and, and mm -hmm. all that stuff. 
but now what they're doing and they saw maybe direct results from it too right also too let's not forget in the military we're a very integral part of a very strong chain okay mm -hmm. so if you break there's a link in that chain yeah you can kind of be replaced with somebody else there could be a team of 10 mechanics mm -hmm. right I have a special skill set within that mechanic team that I can get done. So even though if I call in sick or if I'm out down and broken or whatever, there's still some element of that chain that's affected. We can't say that about the civilian side. Mm -hmm. Civilian side, we see a lot of it where it's just like if somebody's down and out and broken, it's like, oh, they'll take care of it when they get back or we'll just find someone to fill their spot. They're replaceable. So, and a lot of yeah. people get that feeling where it's just like... That, so that's a great segue into the other part of that question is... How did you do first dealing with civilian counterparts that have no military experience other than be like, yeah, I knew a guy who served once or like my uncle might have served, you know, like it's a really good example. You know, it's, well, when's this, when is this project or when is this, this piece of work going to be done? Oh, you know, well, so-and-so is on vacation right now. It'll be done when, get, when they get back. Yeah. Well, why, why doesn't anybody else know how to do that job? You know, why, why, why do we have single points of failure? You can't change it. And that's you know, the thing. It's like, that if ever, someone is, ever like drive you insane and get to you. It or, does. But also at the same time, it's if I can't change it, why am I going to stress about it? That's, that's where a lot of people get hung up. Mm -hmm. It's they try to, or they, they stress about stuff that they can't change. And that just eats at them. And that just takes away time and energy. So if you can't change a stressor or if you can't change a policy or a procedure or something the way that's mm -hmm. going to be done, if you directly cannot change it, why am I going to stress about it? You know, I, I, I mean, I hate to, to over speak, but there's, I, I came to the conclusion years ago that if we always said, if you can't, if you can change something, then why, why freak out about it? Why stress? Right. Cause you have the power to change it. Yeah. And if you can't stop you can't change something. And why stress out? Because there's nothing you can do about it anyways. But yet still, even knowing that and trying to live by that and, and coming to that conclusion myself years ago, still to this day, it's is it you think it might be just of what's just been so permanently ingrained into us to how we operate that it just rubs us the wrong way? Yeah. Like yeah, so we've I'm, been I'm impressed with guys like if, if, if it's like yourself, like you say, they can can kind of just push past that. That's that's impressive to me. Well, like, a lot of people, they, they've been brought up to, to learn that stress is bad. That stress is going to put them in an early grave. That mm -hmm. if they stress about stuff a lot, that it's just going to, uh, it's going to kill them early. But I take stress and I use it as a motivator because I'll put it immediately if something stresses me out, I'll put it in one of two categories. Can I control it? Can I not control it? If I can't control that stressor, then I let it go. Right? I just, I don't deal with it because I'm not going to use my time and energy on something that I'm going to have no direct effect on. Mm -hmm. If I can have some direct effect on it, then the energy that I would use stressing about it, I'm going to put it into changing it. If I can directly change that stressor, then I'm going to change it. And then that's it. I come across a stressor. It's that fork in the road. Can I change it? Nope. Okay. And whatever. I'm not going to worry about it. It has no effect on me whatsoever. And I'm just going to let it go. So, so you... Correct me if I'm wrong. You're saying that basically you looked back on your time in service as a period of growth yeah. to help you where you are now yeah. as opposed to the complete dismantling of identity yep. and everything else. So I'll sum it up this way. Everyone will always ask that question, and it, it'll come up a lot of times in conversation with people. And it's like, if you can go back in, in your life and change one thing, what would it be? 
And my direct answer is nothing. I yeah. would not change one single thing yeah, I think because I everything that. that I have done up until this point has brought me to exactly where I want to be and my level of happiness and comfort and everything that I'm doing right now, it, it has brought me to this point. Yeah, I've stumbled, I've failed, I've smacked my face on the pavement a couple of times, but it was all a learning experience. I can't go back and change the past, so I'm not going to worry about it. I can't change the future, so I'm not going to worry about it. What I do right now will affect the future and it'll affect certain aspects of it, but I don't know what's going to happen. So I'm just going to concentrate on the current moment. Do you ever find yourself trying to continuously relive the glory days? No, no, no. Cause I want to focus on the, I want to focus on the present. Wow. That's impressive. Cause if I focus too much on the past, then I can't sit there and focus on our mission and, and within the organization, mm -hmm. I can't focus on my time with my kid or I can't focus on my time with Allison and stuff because I'm too hung up on the past and too hung up on the glory days and the, what could have been and what I did. And that's not fair to them because that's robbing them of the time that I have with them currently. Mm -hmm. So why am I going to do it? It just mm -hmm. doesn't make any sense to me. That's wow. It's, it's friggin' deep. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> wow. That's, man, it, it, I, it, I learned it, something right there. <laughs> Shit. Oh my God. All right. So let's, well, let's, let's move, let's move into the guardians. Um, so what drew you, what drew you to help in this community? So uh, helping, well, I, mean, I, I want to say this, but really yours. So I was, there was at one time, uh, because of PTSD, TBI, all this other type of stuff, um, I was at like a low point and I found it was because I didn't have a mission, right? Going back army, we have a mission, we completed, we fulfilled, yeah. go to the next mission, come back to civilian life. I kind of felt like I didn't have a mission. So I was like, all right, I kind of need to find something. Wasn't really actively looking. So through my sister-in-law, I met an individual by the name of Brent Walker. Uh, he's army. I'm army. We connected, just started talking. And he was like, Hey, I have this organization. Um, he's like, I'm kind of, he's like, I kind of took a year off uh, to kind of reorganize and restructure things and how I want to do it. He's like, but what I do is I do a motorcycle run every year and I donate the proceeds to the wounded warrior project. And I'm like, okay, that's kind of cool. Right. Seems um, legit. I grew up in the motorcycle community, so immediately that spoke to me because of my mom and dad. Uh, so he was like, do you want to get involved? And I'm like, yeah, just you have my contact information. So it was around September, October of 2015. Um, he contacted me. He's like, hey, we're having a meeting. Uh, this is the direction that we're going to go with the organization. So he went from helping Wounded Warrior Project to going right into the combat wounded veteran community because he's a purple heart recipient he wanted to help his community directly awesome demographic right you're targeting a certain demographic that's perfect so 2015 i joined as just a normal volunteer helping with parking cars facebook posts selling t-shirts all that other type of stuff from 2015 to may of 2016 we lined up to do the at the time it was named the Purple Heart Poker Run Incorporated. That was the name of the organization. We helped um, Vietnam vet Clarence Hook um, did the poker run in May out of the Norwich VFW. Shortly after that, that uh, poker run, Brent calls me and he's like, hey, I want to pitch an idea to you. Tell me what you think. And the idea was, is he wanted to take the organization to the next level, but he couldn't do it on his own, right? So he's like, I want to, I want you to take over as president help me run the day to day. He's like, you 
oversee everything. Come to me if you have any issues. He's like, but you're going to be solely responsible for basically making everything run and happen. He's like, okay. And he was like, how perfect is this that we have? He's like, our organization is designed for a Purple Heart recipient stepping up and asking for help. And he's like, here I am as a Purple Heart recipient stepping up and asking for help. He's like, what better? That's an awesome story. And I'm like, yeah, that's beautiful, dude. Let's do it. So June of 2016, I took over as president. And then from June of 2016 into June of 2017, we were helping Afghan vet Connor Beck. Mm -hmm. um, and we were hitting the ground hard. Like we were just hitting it really hard with advertising and stuff. We found out right around the holidays that the Purple Heart Poker on Incorporated did not work for an organization name. And here's why. If I put out an event in December as the Purple Heart Poker Run Incorporated, people are going to think it's a motorcycle run, right? Snow, <laughs> snowmobile run. <laughs> and we ran into that, okay? So I came to the organization. I was like, all right, guys, look, we need a name. We need a name for the organization. And on top of that, we need a logo. There was a little bit of resistance. There was a little bit of pushback. Um, we don't need to change the name. And I'm like, look, we do need to change the name. It's because of X, Y, Z. I'm like, look, let's try it. If it doesn't work, then we'll go back. There's no harm in it. It's basically rebranding an organization. That's all that it is. So we were sitting down and it was uh, the team and we we're kind of like, what do we do? And through conversation, somebody was like, we're kind of like the guardian angels of the Purple Heart. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, yeah, we are. I'm like, that would be a great name, but that is a mouthful. So then someone was like, what about guardians of the Purple Heart? And I'm like, ooh, that's yeah. gold. Yeah. <laughs> so we did a quick history, Google right? search. Nothing came up. Nothing came up on any of the socials, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, nothing like that. So we immediately secured it. Um, we had a logo, which uh, was more left and right mm -hmm. and not so nor or yeah, not so up and down. Yeah, the wings um, were more splayed out. Yeah, the wings were more splayed out, but we found it didn't really work for merch. Uh, so we had it redesigned into what people see now. Um, and then it was from 2016 to 2017 when I was at the uh, basically at the helm running things mm -hmm. and implementing so many different ideas. Look at you using Navy terminology. I know. <laughs> Try. I, I'm all inclusive, right? <laughs> <laughs> so um, seeing the progression and seeing the dramatic effect that we had on one individual, it was. I was like, this is it. This is what I need to do. 2017 is March of 2017 is when I went in for my last back surgery. During that time frame that I was recovering, I spent a lot of time working for the organization, doing meetings, phone calls, text messages. I slowly saw the progression of like us gaining more traction. Then I was like, this is where we need, I, this is where I need to be. I yep. need to be doing something like this full time, right? I went and got, interviewed for the homeless hospitality center for the veterans community over new london mm -hmm. during the interview the guy goes where'd you get your degree from i'm like i don't have a degree like mm -hmm. this is just talking to people this is networking he's like well there's no way you can do this without a degree he's like we'll call you I'm like yep that's the thanks, thanks. but no thanks <laughs> so finally i got the thanks but no thanks email i got really really upset mm -hmm. um and then finally, it was like, I, I remember saying, you want a degree? Fine. I'll get you a degree. Hold my beer. Mm -hmm. Contacted the VA. I qualified for voc rehab, uh, quit the career doing nuclear security, 
in January of 2018, I went to uh, started Three Rivers Community College. And from January of 2018 to December of 21, um, was a full-time college student getting my degree in industrial organizational psychology so I could take ev with a minor in communications. So everything that I could learn there, just filtered it right back into the organization and used it for the progression of being able to help the veteran community. Hmm. And it's just having that mission every single day, waking up, knowing that today is going to be the day that we're going to change somebody's life or yeah. today is going to be the day that somebody is going to wake up and go, I need help. And then I'm going to be able to turn around and go, Seth, Nick, Lindsay, like guys, this is who we have to help today. And then all of a sudden what's going to happen, you guys are immediately going to spring into action and take care of this individual and being able to have that mission every single day and change that person's life. It's, it changes your life in the end. What do you, what do you think, uh, being a part of an organization like guardians specifically does for you though? Does it, does it scratch that, that itch of needing to do something? I know I can't really put it into words. I mean, you mentioned in the beginning, like always giving back and being part of uh, charities has, has been in my blood since I was young. Cause like I said, my dad did the whole toys for tots thing. So it's always been ingrained in me. So it just, it's one of those things where it's just, it feels right. You know, a lot of times you get the veterans will say, I feel like a, a missing puzzle piece when I come back. Right. I feel like I don't fit in this industry, in this community, in this organization. I, I finally feel like I fit. And I finally feel like, so I'm a firm believer that we're put on this earth for one mission. It's up to us to find that mission, right? We have to dig deep and we have to, to figure out where our mission lies. I, I'm kind of a firm believer that this was what I was put on this earth for. Like, this is my mission and this is what I'm going to do. Yeah. A lot of guys will, will say, or kind of have the, the feeling that it's, it's not as much the result as is the process that helps them, right? It's, it's the, I can't sit here. I can't do this same thing every day over and over and over again. Like I work in manufacturing. Yeah. I look at the guys on my floor and I'm just like, oh, I couldn't do that. I don't know how y'all do it. Like it's, it looks so much harder to, to me than to, to be up here managing everything all at once. Um, but I think, I think a lot of guys, it's literally just the process that I, I need something to do. I have this, this switch that is turned on. The knob has been, was broke off years ago. I, I don't know how to shut it off. Yeah. You got to give me something to do yep. or I am going to go crazy. Yeah. And I think for a lot of guys, things like this is what kind of soothes that or what gives them a, okay, it's an, it's a healthy outlet for that. Yeah, As and I think to, also know, think too dopamine is, chasing, you know, self medication, anything else like that. One of the other defining moments was for me is when we were, when I was sitting there, I took our 2017 recipient uh, Connor Beck, him and I went fishing over at Bluff Point, and we were sitting there, and we weren't catching anything. It was just that moment of just two veterans just sitting there having a moment and just talking and being with each other. Mm -hmm. And he turns around and he was just like, "I'm going to be honest with you." He's like, if it wasn't for you and your organization, he's like, I wouldn't be here today. He's like, I was on the verge of giving up. He's like, but you guys gave me that hope to keep fighting. You guys gave me that fire back 
to get my life back on track, to be there for my family and be there for my fiance or my girlfriend or whatever. And it was that moment where it was like, we are doing really good things for this community. We're doing really good things for people. And we all know the 22 a day. And we're very familiar with the 22 a day. And we want to bring that number down to a solid zero. And we know it's never going to happen. But if we can help someone from becoming a statistic, then that's monumental. And in that moment, he said, you saved me from becoming a statistic. And I think it right there, it was just like, okay, that fire was just lit even more. And yeah. every year at the honorary dinner, that fire gets lit again and again and again. Because as we disclose to the recipient what we did for them, what we're providing for them, what we're paying for, what we're paying off. It's you literally see that stress like come off their shoulders and you can see them breathe a sigh of relief. Mm -hmm. And then it's, you see it in their face, you see it in their family's face and there's that sense of happiness and um, hope again. Mm -hmm. And then you just, you get that fire back in you and the dinner ends. And then what do we do with the dinner? We're like, all right, recycle it let's let's find another one right, <laughs> right. work up work we're, ups for the next appointment let's we're go exhausted we're tired we're drained you know we just spent an entire year planning and executing and and hosting this dinner that boils down to a 20 minute speech which boils down to a five minute reveal of what we're doing for one individual or two individuals so we work 365 days a year for five, maybe 10 minutes at most. Yeah. And then we turn around and do it all over again. Well, that was fun. Let's do it again. <laughs> exactly. But at the same nice. time, that five minutes is enough to dump gasoline on the fire to just light this inferno inside of someone. Be like, we need to keep going. And I, I think it's just everything combined. And also, too, for me, it's – and you guys have heard me say this plenty of times before. It's the team that I work for. It's not the team that works for me. It's the team that I work for, right? Because I'm a firm believer that if I'm not out there making the connections and if I'm not out there um, putting little or planting little seeds in people's heads and, you know, being at the forefront, then everyone else really has nothing to do or go on. Mm -hmm. So I work for you guys and having such a fantastic and phenomenal team that backs up decisions and just says, yep, go for it. Yeah, I don't know about you. I uh, I have what is commonly known as, uh, what is it? An executive deficiency, all right? <laughs> Which means is that I, I, uh, I don't work for myself very well. <laughs> yeah. You know, I need, I... Mm, I like direction. Yeah, I've noticed yeah. that when we're trying to plan what time the you know podcast is, and it's like, what are we doing? And you're like, I don't know, what are we doing? I'm like, like oh, direction. dude, just make a decision. Well, no, I mean, I can. You know, I, I try to keep my my time no, good, as much as possible for you guys. But no, you know, you walk in, what's the first thing I say? Hey, boss. Yeah, you know, same. And that's you, the thing. Nick, it's, it's I need and, I, I need that, and it, it's, it's good. such. It, it's rewarding because it's yeah. I, I was president for seven years, and. For the longest time, I heard every single year when um, it would come to the the fiscal year voting and someone had the opportunity to step up and take over a role as president, I'd have no objections if somebody wanted to step in and put their ideas in play. But every single year, it was like, no, you're not leaving this spot. We like what you're doing. You're doing a fantastic job. And I'm like, it's not me. It's you guys. You guys are the ones driving this train. Like, I'm just out there giving you direction. You guys are executing everything. Mm -hmm. um, 
so yeah, it's it's the team. Do you that, feel do you feel like your time with the Guardians has kind of helped with some of those past issues from your time in the service and your deployments and everything like that? Like working for something positive, something good, putting that same drive and energy that you had while you were in the service, doing this, and it helps kind of just round you out, and make you better. Yeah, because I mean, I bring a lot of the the past stuff that I've been through into the leadership aspect of uh, being at the forefront of um, this organization. It's you know, day one of AIT, it, that was our our class was our drill sergeant's first class, and he said, "I'm a firm believer in I lead by the power of example and not the example of power." And that's always stuck to, since like, what was it? 1999. Like that's been in my brain since 1999. And I live by that. It's because like I will lead by the power of example. And then you guys will turn around and do the same exact thing in the chats. We're sitting there like, well, what are we going to do about this? And then what do I always reply with? We're not going to worry about that right now because we can't foresee the future. We're going, if that happens, we're going to deal with it in the moment. Oh, well, this happened the other day. Doesn't matter. That's yesterday we're just going to let it be and we're going to learn from it, right? So a lot of the stuff that happened in the military and whatnot, I do bring to the leadership aspect of of this organization. I'm talking more in reverse, though. How does, so? Does the organization and what you, what you do with, you know, the Guardians of the Purple Heart and general helping the community help relieve some of the holdovers from your service, from your What do you mean by holdovers? It's some of the issues that you might have to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis after leaving uh, you know, does it does it help does it it doesn't it doesn't because a lot of times too like i have to have those conversations with certain people about mm -hmm. their time in the service and how they got injured and stuff mm -hmm. so i have to relive moments with individuals yeah there's you know, moments I where i want to forget and there's things that i'm i try not to recall myself mm -hmm. and then talking to them I have to relive certain moments. So it's a constant reminder of, you know, what happened or, you know, someone can turn around like a, someone who's from um, like Iraq or Kuwait, they could say, you know, that smell and I don't know exactly what they're talking about, mm -hmm. you know, that sound or that sight. And I know exactly what they're talking about. And it's that certain things that you try to forget that are constantly brought up. Wow. But at the same time, it does help drive that mission where it's like, hey, I know how we can help with this. Mm -hmm. Like I deal with the same thing. This is how I deal with it. It might not work for you, but let's give it a shot. Mm -hmm. Maybe introduce them to the organization and get them involved. And it, it does help. Mm -hmm. It does help being in this organization to, you know, get involved and whatnot. But yeah, reliving those moments. No, I can, help. <laughs> I, I can only imagine. I don't think anybody would want to do that, but at least, you know, that when you're doing it, yeah, that it's, it's for something pretty awesome. Yeah. You know, um, I yeah. think like we had talked about before, one of the best things about this is that we get the same process. We get the same, same, you know, mission mentality, but we just get to choose what the mission is. Yep. So exactly. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. So we've gone through quite a few years. All right. We'll leave with the future. Okay. What are your plans? For, just for you as an individual and then maybe, you know, for the organization without relaying secrets, <laughs> you, you know, um, like we got some pretty awesome stuff planned coming up here yeah, just for the so show. <laughs> I, my, so for the organization, my mission is, is to have 
our logo be as recognizable as Wounded Warrior Project. Like Wounded that. Warrior Project, you can take the words out of it and just post the silhouette and people know exactly who they are. Mm -hmm. They know exactly what they do. They know their mission statement and how to get a hold of them. Mm -hmm. I want to I want to be at that level where we could just plaster our medallion and wings without the words and then people be like, that's Guardians of the Purple Heart. This is what they do. And I want to be known on that national, global level to where what our mission is and what we do personally i don't know i'm just gonna take it one day at a time yeah. because i don't know what's gonna happen tomorrow i don't know what's gonna happen when i pull out of the you know the studio driveway or whatever so i'm not gonna stress about it yeah when I'm you pull just, out of the nagatomi plaza parking lot because <laughs> that's where we are i'm i'm just going to i'm gonna live in the moment i'm gonna have fun with it and there's a there was a couple of times where i almost didn't make it home um there was, I have a picture, I can bring it up and show you, um, where I'm standing next to my Humvee and right where I'd be sitting, there's like a, a bullet hole mm -hmm. in the glass. And when I noticed that, when I came back, I was like, man, if that glass wasn't there, I wouldn't be I'm here. Close call. I'm like, I need to start living life. <laughs> so I, I, I like to have fun. I like to laugh and joke and, um, just live in the moment. Mm -hmm. So again, I don't, regret or worry about the past and i don't worry about the future i just well, worry I think, about the here and now i think you having that attitude of someone who's you know well i'll put in the words of audie murphy to hell and back again yep um but to live like that just as, as positive as possible I, i'm sure you're inspiring a lot of people i hope so so i hope so but i'll probably make at least difference in one person that's it because if I can make a difference in one person's life, then that person can hopefully make a difference in another person's life. And then it's just a chain reaction. Yeah. And then it's just a domino effect. And then it just carries on from there. Awesome. Well, I mean, I, th I think that just about wraps it up then. Um, yeah. But, you know, I, we, we work together all the time. But yeah. I will appreciate or say that I appreciate you sitting down, talking a little bit more about this stuff. Uh, I think it will help people. I think it will inspire people. Um, let us know in the comments, you know, if you like this kind of stuff, because we do have some other people that might be interested in coming on the show, uh, opening up, sharing experiences, you know, talking about things that are that are useful for all of us, yep. good tools. Um, I think it's a little bit more interesting coming from someone whose actual profession is teaching the tools to get through a lot of these things. Um, so that's actually pretty awesome. Uh, and it lends itself well to what we do here, yeah. especially when we start seeing an influx of actual, you know, veterans coming into the organization and stuff, you know, where it's doing kind of like I do, where it's, well, we need someplace to put, to be an outlet to that, yeah. to that energy that we, that we can't shut off and you know, we got to put it somewhere. So let's put it in some good use. Exactly. Um, so I think, uh, I think it's great, man. I appreciate it a lot. Oh, thank you. So, uh, until next time, uh, we'll be seeing you. We got some cool stuff coming planned up. Uh, might drop some hints here and there. So follow us on the social media page. Uh, make sure you like, make sure you subscribe, share these videos as much as possible. We are growing. Yep. Um, one of our Instagram posts, uh, is just about to approach 200,000 views. Good deal. Um, it's growing exponentially. Yeah, uh, we're reaching out to some pretty awesome people to do fun and exciting things with just as much as passion uh, for what they do as what yeah. we do here. Um, yeah, doing a lot of good stuff. Community. So, you got anything? No, else to add? I'm good. All right. Well, good. so long from uh, Cover Down and the Guardians of the Purple Heart.
And as usual, folks, stay proud, stay grateful, enjoy your Memorial Day. See you.